book of James, chapter 1, verse 1 to 8. Let's give our attentive listening, for this is God's holy word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for calling us to worship and now giving us this opportunity to receive and feed upon your word. Give us, God, humble, teachable hearts so that we can really be shaped into the image of your Son so that we may be more like him, more like your children. Uh, we ask all this in your Son's name. Amen. So we just completed our topical series right, on why we do what we do in our worship service, and um, excited to dive into this expositional series in the book of James, meaning we're going to go through the whole book, um, chapter by chapter, page by page, and um, I'm excited because, I mean, for lack of a better word, this is our, uh, this is our bread and butter, this is our main diet right here, this is the food we believe we need. Every page of scripture, it's the word of God. Um, that's why we're here. But we're also here because we have this ancient belief that this text is real, it's living, it's active. There's a living God who speaks to his people through it. And did God know that we would be here um, during this season and sit under this teaching, open up the book of James, Absolutely. And so we can look forward to how God will speak through this directly into our lives, into our hearts um, in the coming weeks and months. That's one reason why I'm excited to dive into this series. Another reason I'm excited to dive into James with you is because James is an intensely practical letter. It's considered to be the wisdom literature of the New Testament. And although it's packed with really rich theological truths, doctrinal truths, it's all about living it out. It's all about helping you take the wheels of your faith and, and, and hit the ground, get you running. Uh, it's about being a true, therefore, true Christian. Um, and to the degree that it's talking about real faith meeting real life circumstances, um, to the degree that it's talking about that, it's talking about real church, real Christianity, true religion, according to the Bible, um, which is true religion is synonymous in the Greek as true worship. To figure out whether we're worshiping God truly, whether we're doing church the way that God is pleased by, whether we ourselves are genuine believers, 
you got to take what James says seriously because James is all about real faith in uh, real life. Um, all right, so with that in mind, let's begin to see where James begins. Where does he start us off? In talking about true faith, true religion, a true believer, how does James begin? Here's how he begins. You got to start by examining how you're handling your trials. How are you handling suffering? Isn't that interesting? He doesn't begin with, how long have you been a member of a church? Did you make a clear profession of faith? How have you served and in capacity? How much theology do you know? How reformed are you? Do you understand Presbyterianism? Or how great your marriage is or how exemplary your children are or, or even this, how passionate you are about Jesus. His starting point is said is, how are you doing in your trials? How are you doing um, when suffering hits? Meaning, if you really want to know the genuineness and the maturity, the true quality of your faith, true quality of your faith, look no further than how you are handling your trials, how you are handling suffering, and start there. And, and here's how he uh, guides us in our reflections. First, uh, he gives us a new perspective on our trials. And then he begins to offer us hope in our trials and help in our trials. Perspective, hope, and help. We are three points for today, all right? So point number one, perspective on our trials. Uh, take a look at verse two. Count it all joy... My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Okay, here's the first perspective, first perspectival point. Meeting trials is a matter of when, not if. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's a matter of when, and not if. Suffering is a part of this life on this side of heaven. It will be a part of everything we do in life, everything you touch in life. And, and this kind of realism is really important because it's only when we come to grips with this will we realize how therefore pointless and defeating it is to pursue a life without trials and suffering. That's truly pointless to live as though that's possible a life without suffering life without trials in fact to live that way is really essentially what the secular life is it's to live this life as if perfection glorification god's shalom all the things god promised us to inherit in heaven are somehow attainable in the here and now if you believe that it would be natural wouldn't it for someone to live as though suffering is a matter of if not when all right if I only work harder, if I only study harder, if I only live in a nicer neighborhood, if, if, if I only just save up enough money, then trials would be completely avoidable. And that's, that's, in a sense, secularism in a nutshell, living as though this life is all you got, as if this is your only chance at happiness. 
your only shot at paradise, that this current natural material world is all there is, therefore, um, now is the time to pursue a life without trials and suffering. Paradise now. Right. Um, but just a couple minutes of careful reflection will, will prove that wrong. No matter how much money you have or how nice a neighborhood you live in, trials and suffering will be present there. And you need this realism to set your life on the right trajectory and actually seek out the wisdom that will help you navigate through trials and suffering. And not the kind of false advertisement that the world gives you. Do this and you will avoid trials and suffering altogether. James is the truer and wiser counselor for us. And he gives us a better perspective, which he says in verse 3 is this, to see to it that you have this perspective on suffering, that it produces something. Uh, see to it, you gain this perspective on suffering, that it can be productive. can't be avoided, but it can be productive. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So suffering is unavoidable, but it doesn't render it unproductive. So verse 2, count it all joy. Why? Because the testing of your faith produces bears the fruit of steadfastness. He, he equates trials with the testing of our faith. As, to, as if to say, suffering shows you tangibly, evidentially, that you truly, genuinely trust God. And to you, it's not a theory. It's a reality. When that faith shows up in reality, that's worth rejoicing over. That's worth giving thanks for. What will make it show up in reality? Your suffering, your trials. It's suffering and trials that will show you, even if it is a glimpse, of how God has gifted you with a faith that is tenacious, strong, enduring, persevering, and that's worth its weight in gold. That's worth rejoicing over. So this perspective on our trial, that although it is unavoidable, it is not therefore unproductive. Um, suffering doesn't have to be deconstructive. In fact, it can be constructive towards a more mature and tenacious faith. God is encouraging us, therefore, to, to bear the fruit of steadfastness, fruit of endurance, fruit of perseverance in our faith. Because that faith, having endured trials and suffering, is going to be more precious than the faith you had at first. Just as the, the love you have after decades of marriage is more precious than the love you had when you were still dating. After all the trials with your spouse, after all the conflicts and arguments and suffering, you will end up with a more tenacious love, a love that sticks around, a steadfast love. In God, our spiritual bridegroom, he desires the same for us and from us, for us to be steadfast in our love for him as he is for us. And therefore, for your relationship with him to be continually refined as you walk through trials and suffering with him. We've got to keep this perspective on our trials and our suffering. 
It's a matter of when, not if. And um, therefore, don't be so derailed, don't feel derailed with trials and suffering when they visit you. Might that actually turn your eyes to heaven more and cause you to pray with the apostle for the Lord to return sooner rather than later? Might it transfer your hope to his new creation rather than setting your hope on earth as if this is your one and only shot at happiness? Absolutely. Gives us a heavenly perspective as well. So again, suffering is not unavoidable, but wasteful suffering, deconstructive suffering, yeah, they're avoidable. And we can know that by God's grace, even through our suffering, even through our trial, we can produce a more steadfast, a more tenacious, more persevering and enduring faith. All right. That's the perspective. Here's the second point, the hope. Take a look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, these two words, perfect and complete, teleos, holokleos, mean, they mean mature and wholesome. Two words that point to a perfectly matured character. A truly flawless man, a truly flawless woman would be a man or woman with teleos, holocleos. Now, what we also know from the Bible is that this kind of complete maturity and wholeness won't be achieved until we reach glory in new creation. Meaning, uh, one day uh, you will get there. One day we will be this complete. One day we will be this whole. And, and that in and of itself is hopeful and hope-giving. But what's incredibly hope-giving beyond that is that the Bible tells us that our steadfastness through trials and suffering now is a part of bringing us closer and closer to that full effect of being made perfect and complete. We are living the process now. How? In our trials and suffering. Jesus said, I'm, I, I am making all things new. And sometimes we miss the, the very important verb there. I am making all things new, not I will. In our trials, suffering, conflicts, he's right now working all things for our good, for our completion, for our maturation. So not only do trial and suffering not get in the way of our maturing, it contributes to it. That's our hope. Nothing is more hope-giving than that. That even in the midst of our trial and suffering, we can know based on God's own promise, it will all contribute to our perfection, not compromise it. Let's remember that moving forward. Carry this hope as you, as you leave today and re-enter your trials, re-enter your, your suffering. Whether you are suffering a circumstantial trial or a, a relational trial, hope in God, trust Him when He says, I will make it all work for your good. Make them only add to your Christ-likeness. So even though trials may follow you all the days of your life, so will God's goodness, so will his mercies, so will his power, so will his faithfulness. He's going to take everything you suffer 
the unavoidable suffering in your life and make you more and more like his son, Jesus. He who promised is faithful, he will do it. That's the hope. All right, here's the third point, help. Let's read again from uh, verse 5 and on. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Here's what this means. For one, you're going to need wisdom to live this way. You need God's wisdom to gain his perspective on your suffering and hope, hope in him, in your suffering. You can't just have this perspective and hope while you're coasting through life on neutral. You got to get wisdom. You got to seek wisdom. You got to excavate, dig up wisdom. You got to pray for wisdom. That's how you get, by asking him, he says. Ask God. Seek God for wisdom, who gives generously to all without reproach. And the implication of God giving generously his wisdom to his people is what? The implication is, we need a lot of it. (laughs) He has to be generous with it, because we need a ton of his wisdom. In fact, we need a lifetime of this wisdom from God, from his word, from his spirit, from his counsel, a lifetime of you sensing a lack of wisdom, a lifetime of you sensing, God, I don't know what to do. I need your wisdom again. Your your help begins here, your help in your trials, knowing that what you need more than anything in conflict, in trial, in suffering, is, is it's not conflict resolution techniques or preventative measures. It's wisdom, wisdom from God, wisdom of God. And and along with that, a humble acknowledgement of your lack of such wisdom, of your deficit of such wisdom. So verse six says, ask. And when you ask, ask in faith and don't doubt. And this doesn't mean uh, what a lot of people usually think it means, this sort of intellectual doubt. Oh, will God actually give this to me? Or does God even exist? Will he even hear my prayer? That's not James's audience. Uh, the struggle of his audience is, is not atheism. Uh, verse 1 tells us the audience is the 12 tribes of dispersion. These are Jewish Christians, um, deeply theistic, deeply religious. So this wasn't some intellectual challenge to, you know, some basis for rational basis for monotheism. They're not struggling with that, no. You have to remember given this context, that this doubt that James is talking about is in the context of asking for something you lack and by implication something you want. Doubt in this context is doubting, therefore, whether you really lack this and doubting whether you really want this. Maybe what I really need is to change my circumstances. Uh, I'm struggling over here. Maybe my answer is to move over there. Relocation. Or maybe what I need is to change my relationship. 
I'm struggling with this person. Maybe my answer is to remove this person from my, from my life, from my fellowship. Isolation. If your go-to answer in your trials is relocation or isolation, you're a doubter. You're doubting that the greatest change you need is on the inside. That the greatest problem in your life right now is the lack of wisdom. Lack of God's wisdom. That's doubt. And God's very gentle warning is this. If you live this way, you'll be tossed around like the wind and the waves. Moving from one location to the next, one relationship to the next. If that's your mode of operation, he says, don't think you can simply come to me and just sprinkle a few prayers over your life and expect me to give you anything, he says. Because that is double-mindedness, double-mindedness, as opposed to single-mindedness. There's a dual identity you're living with. Part of you is a believer, part of you a doubter. A part of you believes God when he says what you need most in your life is his wisdom. And a part of you seriously doubts that and you believe maybe your number one need is relocation or isolation. A part of you really wants to please God. But another part of you really just wants to please people. A part of you really wants God's beauty and his glory to satisfy you, but another part of you wants to live for worldly beauty and worldly aesthetics. A part of you really want to rest and enjoy God's gospel of grace that he's finished it all. Another part of you still believes in the false gospel of works that you, you are incomplete unless you work harder. If this is you, then according to verse 8, you are unstable. Unstable in all your ways. I think Jesus, the way Jesus described this is um, using the imagery of the house built on the sand. And God is saying, here's the thing, if you're building your house on the sand, you should not expect me to come and help you build that. You should not expect me to come in once in a while to fix a leak here or there. Because his, his calling is for us to build an entirely different house on a completely different foundation. He's asking us to build our life on him. To be single-mindedly built upon God according to his wisdom and control. Not built upon our desires or the world's desires and asking God to just Please support this life I'm trying to live on the sand with some of your rocks. That's unstable. So to offer us true help, God says, here's, here's the stability you need, the stability of knowing your singular purpose in life, the stability of knowing who you were made for, who you were created to truly enjoy and glorify, the stability of living by God's divine wisdom, not the world's changing wisdom, Stability of resting in the gospel of grace and not the false gospel of works. God is giving us this help, and, and the gospel tells us we have this great help, helper in Jesus Christ. 
who invites us to set our feet upon his rock, to, to accept, receive that rock that the, the other builders have rejected, and to turn to him in the midst of our suffering and our trials for our help and for our hope. So even though this is landing on the language of warning, I hope that encourages you because, for one, what that means is, I mean, why would James even need to put a warning in here unless the, the, the Christians in the early church were really struggling with this? <laughs> like you and me. Uh, unless there were double-minded people in the church during this time. The apostolic age. So we don't have to be surprised to find double-mindedness in the midst of NCA and in our own hearts. And be encouraged, therefore, that God is drawing us nearer to himself even now with, with this wisdom to help us in our current trial and suffering. And he's speaking this to fill us with new hope. Even in his warning, um, he's drawing near. So perspective. Um, Suffering is unavoidable. It's it's not a matter of if, but when. But um, unproductive suffering is avoidable. Um, And you can find joy in, in seeing how suffering produces steadfastness and endurance and authenticity in you. Hope in God's power to take every trial, every suffering, and make them contribute to the full effect of your sanctification and completion and perfection. It's not on you either. It's on his promise. He will be faithful to keep that promise. Hope in his promise. Hope in his faithfulness. And help get wisdom. Go to God's word. Go to prayer. Seek scriptural counsel, get wisdom through worship and through fellowship, through discipleship, get wisdom. Um, and, and remember that your ultimate need is not relocation from difficult situations or isolation from difficult people. It's wisdom to navigate all those things and to glorify God through all those things. So whether you and I, whether we are going to live out a true Mature, genuine faith comes down to this, whether we will wisely handle these trying situations and trying relationships, whether we will heed God's word when he's not silent, he's, he's loud and clear, I am near you. I'm near you. I'm near you. So whatever your doubts may be in the midst of your trials, to not forget, therefore, he is attentive to you attentive to you in your suffering. He's intimately involved. And, and even let the, the table that you're going to eat from today remind you of that, how present he is in your trials and suffering. In fact, how he's gone above and beyond that to take your suffering upon himself. He's not distant. He's near. So let's turn to him, to his cross, to his word, to his counsel, and find all the hope and, and, and all the help that we need in Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, um, we thank you um, for
for your admonishment, for your awakening, for your warning and your discipline, uh, for pointing out uh, our double-mindedness and uh, gently calling us back to you, to draw near to to you with a single-minded focus, to live for your glory, for your enjoyment, and to live under your wisdom, to not live as the world does, to, to make their sole purpose, our sole purpose, the avoidance of trauma and suffering, but our ultimate purpose, glorifying you through it all. Lord, strengthen us, equip us through your Holy Spirit and the gift of your, the generous gift of your wisdom. And even as we come to your table, feed us, feed our souls, make us wise, strengthen us and encourage us to re-enter our trials and suffering that are out there, knowing, God, your goodness follows us all the days of our lives and your mercies are new every day. Your promise greater, um, your son greater um, than the world. So Lord, encourage us now, strengthen us, feed us and equip us as you send us. We ask all of this in your son's name. Amen.